Now that brings us to Roman numeral two, which is Joshua exhorting Israel to be faithful. So chapter 23 and 24 really do form one unit of exhortation. It's kind of divided, so you're going to find in commentaries. Um, they're just basically like two parts of one general exhortation here. But it's really powerful stuff. This is Joshua's final words. And by the way, I say Joshua. There's too many J's. There's Jacob I'm going to talk about, Joshua and Joseph. And then there's, you know, uh, Judah. <laughs> and then we're talking about judges. There's too many J's going on here. So I, I hope I don't mix them all up. I always do this in live classes. But anyway, so Joshua is exhorting the people. Now, these two chapters have so many connections with the book of Deuteronomy. Joshua is a new Moses, and his farewell speech parallels Moses' farewell speech. And as we go through this, I want to draw a lot of these connections uh, together for you, make these points. Uh, it's, it's really exciting stuff to see the, the parallels between the two men at this point in their lives as we conclude the Exodus epic. All right, so this quote that I have for you from your Catholic introduction to the Old Testament, I think is really nice. It says the first, the, the, excuse me, the final two chapters of Joshua breathe the spirit of Deuteronomy. Joshua delivers two very Deuteronomic sermons to the people of Israel assembled at Shechem, located between Mounts Ebal and Gerizim, the two mountains used for the solemnization of the Deuteronomic covenant, and close to Shiloh, where the tabernacle resided during the period of Joshua and Judges. Okay, that's a really nice quote, simple quote to tee us off here, that we're going back to Shechem. Uh, we, and I'm going to review a lot of this stuff as we go through because there's further connections here with these two chapters about Shechem and the geography and why that's important and the theological themes that are brought out by this city here and this territory. Uh, but you'll remember Mount Ebal and Gerizim. That all happened back in chapter 8 where they ratify the Deuteronomic Covenant. Well, they're going to be coming back here uh, in these last two chapters here, especially 24, to uh, renew those vows. Okay. So as we read this, Joshua in chapter 23, verse 1 and following, he is old, he's well advanced in years. Uh, we know that he dies at 110 years old at the end of the book. So he's an old man, like he's been working hard his whole life. He's been at Moses' right hand ever since they left Egypt. He's been the leader of Israel. Uh, it's just been an incredible life. He's, he, he really truly has an incredible life. And so at the end of this life, he is going to spend all the rest of his energy exhorting and warning and encouraging and threatening Israel with all of his might to, to fidelity. All right. This is his farewell speech. These are his parting words. He is a new Moses. And so we're going to see uh, the connections, as I said, with Moses's last final words. But I also want you to remember or be aware of the fact that this pattern of exhorting others to fidelity to God at your deathbed happens with other people in the Bible as well, such as Samuel and David. You could even say Ezra, or rather that's in the middle of his life, but Ezra and Mattathias at his deathbed. And over and over again, you've got this consistent advice and from Israel's leaders on their deathbed to say to their people or their families, be faithful to God. And that's what I would imagine all of us do, right? If we are blessed to see death coming. If death doesn't take us by surprise, we pray to St. Joseph for a good holy death. But if we have a opportunity to call our loved ones close to us, we're probably going to say the same kind of stuff, right? Hopefully we would, I would imagine. You know, I love you and, you know, forgive me and those types of things, you know, being a good, have, you know, ending well with others, but to tell people and to encourage them to be faithful to God. Because at the end of one's life, we're, we're probably not going to wish that we had more money. We're probably not going to wish we got that car instead of this car or whatever. It's, it, it all, it's all about relationships, right? And people who are close to death have, have told us this. So in any case, that's what Joshua's doing, okay? So he's exhorting and warning, encouraging the people at the last moments of his life. 
And he'll begin doing this by talking about God's fidelity. That's a big theme in this, these last two chapters, God's fidelity. For example, chapter 23, verse 2, he says, I am old and well advanced in years, and you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to these nations, to all these nations, for your sake. For it is the Lord your God who has fought for you. That's beautiful. I love that line. I love emphasizing multiple times going back to Exodus through the Pentateuch, through the book of Joshua. There's this theme that God fights for Israel. He has promised to fight for them. He has demonstrated it over and over and over again. And this is what Joshua is reminding the people. So again, the spiritual application is important for us as well. God fights for us. We're not doing this alone. We're not fighting our spiritual battles. We're not trying to fight vice or or fight um, sin by ourselves. God gives us the grace to do it, and he promises us to give us grace. And that's what the the life of Christ is all about, the promise of redemption, and that if we stay close to Christ, we can conquer all things. We can overcome all things. It's really beautiful. So the Lord fights for you. Remember that. I love that so much. The Lord fights for us as he promised and as he has demonstrated. All right. And that actually brings us to this this little small quote I have for you that touches upon the, uh, the overarching theme of what I've entitled this whole Bible study, which is God's promise fulfilled. So this is what your quote says. The book of Joshua is not so much a report about a military campaign as a vivid lesson in theology about how faithfully God keeps his promises and a call to respond to that faithfulness. All right, it's beautiful. In fact, we're going to see that in verse 10, as a matter of fact. He says the same thing. It is the Lord your God who fights for you as he promised you. Okay. All right, so in response, so if God keeps his promises, God is faithful to us, he delivers us from all kinds of calamities, he fights for us, what must Israel do in response? And of course, we must do in response. This is what Joshua will say in verse 6 and following. Therefore, and by the way, every time you see the word therefore, this is a common joke amongst a lot of authors and speakers and teachers, but it's very important. Every time you see the word therefore, you should look at the context and the verses that preceded it to see what it's there for, right? (laughs) So it's kind of silly, but it's so important to understand the context. We never take verses out of context. So in light of God's fidelity and his his, um, loyalty to his covenant in delivering Israel, therefore what they must do, verse 6, be steadfast to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor to the left hand, that you may not be mixed up with these nations left here among you, or make mention of the names of their gods, or swear by them, or serve them, or bow down yourselves to them, but cling to the Lord your God as you have done to this day. I love that image. I'm going to pause for a second here. I'm going to read more in just a second. I love the image of clinging to the Lord. The image I have is that of someone who's shipwrecked, all right, they're out in the middle of the ocean. All right, the boat's long gone, right? It is sunk below, you know, the ocean waves and you, there's nowhere to be found. And, and there's just the single log or the single wood plank. And you're going to cling to that wood plank, <laughs> that log, as hard as you can because you don't want to drown. That's the image that I have with the, when, whenever Moses or Joshua or others says, they say cling to the Lord. I think of like clinging to a log when you're shipwrecked. And you need to hold on for dear life. All right, I, I, that's, that's the image that I have. So he says, cling to the Lord as you have done to this day. And it goes on in verse 9. For the Lord has driven out before you great and strong nations. And as for you, no man has been able to withstand, to withstand you to this day. One man of you puts to flight a thousand, since it is the Lord your God who fights for you as he promised you. There it is again. 
Take good heed to yourselves, therefore, to love the Lord your God. For if you turn back and join the remnant of these nations left here among you and make marriages with them so that you you marry their women and they yours, know assuredly that the Lord your God will not continue to drive out these nations before you, but they shall be a snare and a trap for you, a scourge on your sides and thorns in your eyes till you perish off from this good land which the Lord your God has given you. Okay? (laughs) Wow, powerful stuff. Very powerful and also very familiar. Okay? So, be faithful to the law. That's the first step. God is faithful to you as he promised you. He fights for you. So be faithful to God in its entirety. That's what the expression, don't turn from, from it from the right hand to the left hand. It's like you have to accept everything. In other words, don't be what's commonly used, a cafeteria Christian or a cafeteria Catholic, where you accept the things that you know don't bother you so much, but the typical challenging moral teachings of Scripture and of the church, you're like, yeah, no, well, the church needs to get with the times. You can't do that. Like that's You need to be faithful to the entirety of the law. By the way, that's exactly what God says to, this whole thing is what God says to Joshua back in chapter 1, if you remember that. Right? It says the same thing, be faithful to the law, meditate on the law. So Joshua saying the same thing to the people. So that's the first thing. The second thing is don't mix in with the Canaanites that remain. So just as we saw throughout the various chapters from chapter 12 all the way to chapter 21, there are various pagans that are remaining in the land and they need to finish the job, right? They must continue to drive out the inhabitants and remove all the idolatrous shrines and altars. You cannot mix with the Canaanites. You can't stop the task. You can't stop your work. Because if you mix in with the Canaanites and intermarry with them, it's going to be a huge problem. You're going to fall into sin. You're going to worship their gods. And you're going to break the covenant that you have with God. Right? And that's a big, big problem. God requires... In fact, you know what? Let me just read this quote here for you. It's beautiful. This is a quote here from the Ignatius Catholic Study Bible. The covenant between Yahweh and Israel is sacred and exclusive. I like that. It's sacred and it's exclusive. God is not going to share us with anything else. And God has every right to demand 100% of our hearts. Because he's God. He's given us life. He's given us natural life. He gives us everlasting life. So he's perfectly within his rights as God and the creator of the universe to want us entirely for himself. So it's exclusive. And he's not going to share us with Satan. He's not going to share us with created goods of any kind. Anyways, it goes on. This means that Israel is forbidden to make alliances with foreign peoples in their midst or to intermarry with the surviving Canaanites. Rather, it must eliminate them from the land and destroy every last trace of their idolatrous cults. Assimilating pagan ways will bring painful consequences and lead eventually to exile from the land, end quote. These are important themes here, okay? Exile from the land if you do not remove sin from your midst. We'll talk about that a little bit more. All right, but this is so true, and this is what's happening in Western culture today, where good Christians are little by little assimilating into the culture around them. You know, you go and you read like the Catholic epistles, for example, especially like John, Peter, all of the, really the Bible, right? The Bible says, do not love the world or the things in the world. That's from 1 John. You know, the world is at enmity with God. We have three enemies. We have the world, the flesh, and the devil. So if we start giving into the world and we start, quote unquote, intermarrying with people who are godless, who do not fear God, who do not love God, I tell you what, it's going to be very easy to fall into the sins of the world as well. It's true for Israel then. It's true for us Catholics today. So the lessons are always very, very relevant and very, very applicable. Okay, so if you sin, you will be exiled. 
So do not mix in with the Canaanites, because if you do, those remaining Canaanites in the land, guess what? They're going to be thorns for you. He says, uh, they're going to be a snare and a trap for you, a scourge in your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from the good land. That word thorn is a very important word. Now, Moses himself used the exact same language. So as I promised you, I'm giving you connections and parallels between Joshua and Moses. So Joshua says all of this language here. Moses said the same thing multiple times, but I have for you in your notes, Numbers 33, 55. He says, if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then those of them whom you let remain shall be as pricks in your eyes and thorns in your sides, and they shall trouble you in the land where you dwell. No one likes thorns, right? You know, even roses, beautiful roses, you do yard work and you're trying to prune the roses and you get pricked by a thorn. It hurts. Imagine getting pricked in the eyeball or in, in, the, in the side, right, where your flesh is very, very tender, all right? It's, it's going to hurt you. So the Can- there's this image that the Canaanites are going to be thorns for you, all right? They're going to make you uncomfortable. They're going to bring you pain. And their sin especially are going to cause you disasters. So this is in continuity with Moses' And what Moses has been recommending and exhorting them for all this time. But I want to draw another connection for you. And that is with the story of Adam and him being cursed for his sin. You might remember back in chapter 3 of Genesis, verses 17 and 18, Adam is cursed. And at one point, uh, God says, Cursed is the ground because of you. In total, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. So because of Adam's sin, the ground, the earth, the land is cursed, bringing forth thorns and thistles. So what's the connection here? Well, we've talked a lot about in these past lessons how Israel is now a new creation. Israel is really kind of like a new Adam. Because Israel is the son of God, the firstborn son of God, according to Exodus 4.22, in a certain sense, Israel is a new Adam and a new creation. Remember all of the conversation that we had about crossing the Jordan River through water on dry ground to come to the other side as their renewed people. It's a new creation story that's going on there. So Israel is a new creation that dwells with God in the new Eden of the promised land. That's what the promised land is. It's a, it's a land that's fertile and lush. It flows with milk and honey. That's all garden imagery and garden language, right? So Israel is a new Adam, a new creation that dwells with God once again in the promised land, which is kind of a new Eden. So all of these these little images come together here. But just like Adam sinned and he suffers the curse of thorns that come from the land, that come from the earth, and then he's ultimately exiled from Eden, you're going to see the same parallels. Israel is going to sin against God because of what? The Canaanite thorns. The thorns that dwell in the land, and they're going to be exiled just like Adam was exiled. So that's what we're going to see. Adam was created and then sinned and was exiled. Israel is a new creation and then sins and then is also exiled from the land. And you got the images of thorns, right, which is an image of the sin. And that's actually a connection with Christ. I can't get into all of this right now. But Jesus in his passion really sums up, recapitulates is the word, recapitulates and sums up all of this as a new Adam, right? As Adam suffered in a garden, Jesus suffers in a garden, Adam's cursed with thorns, Jesus takes upon, you know, um, the full brunt of that curse by being crowned with thorns, you know, he, he brings all sin upon himself, so to speak, and, and so on and so forth. So he's a, Jesus is a new Adam, Jesus is a new Israel, but the thorns is a very powerful connection here. Uh, of course, with Christ and his crowning and the humility of he's a, he is a suffering king. And there's a lot to say, but I have to 
discipline myself and come back here to Joshua. The connection with Joshua is that Israel has, is going to suffer from these thorns as well. And ultimately, again, spoiler alert, ultimately they're going to be exiled from the land too. Okay.